0: douglas kennedy was born in manhattan new york he has lived all over the world including dublin london and paris he has a passion for the theater and has worked with multiple companies and shows he is the author of 13 novels including the international bestsellers the big picture the pursuit of happiness leaving the world and the moment his latest novel is isabel in the afternoon published by penguin random house
1: How a book begins for me is strange, I never underestimate the subconscious and fiction and mm-hmm. how it kind of interplays and I'm writing a new book now and I remember going through five different ideas in my head mm-hmm. and trying to live with them, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like trying to get involved with somebody or, or, or getting involved with somebody and then just seeing if it, as they would say in Hollywood, has legs, you know, and mm-hmm. That's the same with an idea, because you're going to be living with it for my pattern is every two years. So it's, I, I, it's a two-year chunk of my life. And also to commit it to it, you, you've got to be pretty sure you can actually write through it, because otherwise then things go haywire and publishers are delayed and all that. And there is that sort of kind of pressure. Mm -hmm. I I, I wish I was in a position like Jonathan Franzen, where I could write a book every 10 years, but you know, Franzen, I think also, you know, he doesn't have kids. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly,
2: I was amazed you, you know, you have kids too. (laughs) Oh
1: yeah, yeah, well. Besides uh, your
2: other, I don't know how many kids of your novels you have.
1: I have two children, they're over there. That's my son Max, and if you go over, look further, my daughter, the actress, she is beautiful, yeah. Yeah. Max is on the autistic spectrum and is at Ringling College of Art and Design in the US. A third year, photography student, doing very well with girlfriend. He was very, he was very autistic at the start, but oh. I set up a wow. school for him. It's been a huge part of my life. But he has come through brilliantly and he's on, a, he's living a, 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 a relatively independent life. He's doing very well, you know, oh. and he is moving along nicely. Well, that was a huge change. So, so much but you know M- max is extraordinary and mm. my daughter is amazingly talented and just did a gap year and then applied you know, audition for cal arts and got in which is not an easy thing because there are only 36 places and about four thousand applicants so mm. she's out there in, in california
2: artistic family yeah too yeah
1: and the, they're the kids from my first marriage which lasted a long time it was a 25 year marriage so right. it was you know a very big block of my life i was late to having children i'm sixty. well you
2: don't look it no,
1: thank you but i was late to having children i was 37 when i had my son I went 41 when amelia arrived and they are the center of my life it's one of those things i never thought i was going to be you know i, I was sort of the father type and then i mm-hmm. discovered actually i was and it's it's, you know, it can be usually difficult sometimes, challenging, but I've never regretted it for a a second. They have enriched everything.
2: It's interesting, because those are some of the, the themes mm-hmm. you deal with in a lot of your fiction. I'm just mm-hmm. thinking of the late, you know, having children late, and, things. Mm-hmm. and and that was something. And I think about your writing, you know, there's some writer, they have a lot of, they write about events of, like, physical bravery, Kevin Way, Mailer. Mm-hmm. And when I think of your fiction, I think it must take a lot of emotional courage Mm -hmm. to write yourself into the heads of women to talk about these Mm -hmm. issues and and really be very convincing. I think that that you must have a very strong animus to to discover
1: that. Thank you, and thank you for saying that. I think you've hit on something very crucial, which Mm -hmm. is... I've never really written a homonacle, you know, Mm -hmm. something directly from my existence. There are two short stories which are so much from my life I'm in the short story collection, but I've never written anything directly. And yet again, you're always writing about yourself. Mm-hmm. You're always writing about yourself. Yeah, okay. That's, yeah. you know, even if you're not writing about something you've actually lived, you're dealing with in your, your own internal weather system, as I've mm-hmm. said, and we all have one. Mm-hmm. And you're also dealing with things that keep you up at night, the things that worry you, the things you, you haven't been able to get right, your fears, and everyone has fears. Every yeah. atmosphere, and they all come into play. It was funny when I started getting quite successful as a novelist. I someone asked me this, I said, "Well, you know, I, I think I write my own contradictions, and then I, was, I discovered <laughs> that they're shared by a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and that I, I, what I was writing about really was uh, things that you know most people live with mm-hmm. in, in some way or another. When I was writing the big picture, I was very much." And this is something an English journalist friend in London said to me at the time, and she had just had two kids, and she said, "Finally, someone's writing about just the hell of white nights, you know, and the launch and sleeplessness and the way." The whole dynamic of the couple changes when the sort of feeling of entrapment that you have, and I, I, as much as I adore my kids, it comes also with with certain limitations as well on your life for a while.
2: I can mention as an I don't have kids. I can mention as an artist that that's yeah.
1: Well, I was able to well. sort of travel still and do things like that. I did quite a bit of that. Well, uh, we know you're a double agent. Below ten for the Cincinnati <laughs> song, but I, I was always. Coming back, and I was always maybe away a week here and there. But it was also it was one of those key things that I'm so glad I did. I think it gave me. I would never say to anyone you should have had children or you should have children or you don't know what you're missing. I mean, I don't like anyone who is prescriptive about life, and I think that's very wrong. And I have a, a, a sister-in-law I don't talk to who. It was always one of these people always make these very prescriptive comments because she expected people to basically um. see the world her way because that was her own limitations and yeah. I just uh, I'm very dubious of anyone who has answers
2: right yeah well there's a lot of dissatisfaction as well you know not leading their own life and that's interesting because in a lot of your books, there is this openness. You're not like, oh, well, this is just happiness here. You know, actually, there are people who t- make that leap or or fail to make the leap. Yeah, I mean,
1: and, you know, happiness is, I think, is the hardest thing to achieve. People who say, oh, I'm a very happy person, that's good. I find those people rare. Mm. Most people I know are very complex. You know, I had an ex-girlfriend once who I liked very much. I am here. It was not meant to be, but we... We're still friends, and she said to me once, at the start of our little thing, she mm-hmm. said, Je suis complexe, mais pas compliqué. And, I, <laughs> and, and, and she said, compliqué, ça c'est quelque chose. And I, I thought, you know, uh, that's a smart person. You know, and I think everyone is complex. Yes. And some of us are very complicated. It's that other thing I start with when I'm writing. I, I often think everyone has pathology.
2: Sure. It's interesting because you're really successful here in France and elsewhere, but here in France... And when you're talking about the complexity, they seem to be open to complexities in France, mm-hmm. to accept, to accept uh, different relationships and all this. And I was wondering, you know, your Chevalier, the Lord Audate and I was wondering, uh, why do you think uh, you're able to, and uh, not a lot of American authors have done that, but why do you think it chimes well? In
1: French I mean, I think there are a couple of things. I think, to begin with, writers work in different cultures for reasons that are, Are frequently mysterious, and I think there are a couple of things. I think I am able to bring in proper narrations, and the French Mm -hmm. like that.
2: Yes, exactly.
1: Big stories, Uh which are very much about modern anxiety and the way we live now, but do it in a way where one you turn the page, but also you think. Um, And I think they like that. I think also there's just something in my sensibility that work here very much. Francophone helps. I mean, that was something. I only started doing when I started living here. I had no French before 2000. Oh,
2: that's, I mean, your French is
1: fluent, right? Yes, completely fluent. And German. And well, my German's okay, but my but my French, I wouldn't say it's perfect, but it's very fluent. Yeah. I mean, I've just judged a book prize in Marrakech for the third year in a row, and that's francophone, and I live in French. Yeah.
2: And, yeah. and it's also the mentality, because you can also speak the language, but not get, but you
0: get.
1: I get the language. I, I, I think also. I get it here, you know, I, I really do. I have been involved with enough people here, and also have enough friends where I get the society, very much, and I have a, I have a great respect for it. I have a huge respect for France, and I think it's an extraordinary country. Mm. And like anywhere, it has its problems, and it has its difficulties, and it, you know its role in Le Monde entier. and all that. But I think I was always uh, Francophile. Yeah, you know, I lived in England for twenty three years after Ireland to uh, London made me on a mm. lot of levels. It's where I really got started. Journalism, but also just as a writer. You know, yeah. that's where it's where I first got published. And I it was my ambition to leave Ireland. London was wonderful but I, and you know, culturally it's is absolutely extraordinary and I had a very good moment where there was a lot of journalism. There, It was still the last great golden age of London journalism, and I got published, and I was able to travel the world. And I found it a lot more fun than New York, because it didn't take itself so seriously, and it wasn't Mm -hmm. so self-important. And the English, you know, I, I said this in a special relationship, Americans believe that life is serious but not hopeless, and Brits believe that life is hopeless but not serious. Yeah. And I was, and it's something chimed in with with uh, with me. I had it, it was an amazing time, but also by the time I'm, I was divorced, I needed to leave. And you know, I still write for places like the Statesman, and I still occasionally broadcast on the BBC, and I have lots of friends there, and I still mm-hmm. have a flat there. Mm-hmm. But I I needed to move on. Paris always just struck me as a place where if you could actually begin to sort of understand the culture in a proper way, not Mm -hmm. in an expatriate American way, not where you have some French friends, but you're kind of living in an Anglophone bubble. And I guess because of my books, Mm -hmm. and then also because I insisted on mastering the language, and I worked very hard at it, they know that too they can see that this the laureate for our prize this weekend Lily shamanic she said to me well, where did you, how did you get such good friends and well, I said that was a lot of work that was eight years of lessons four
3: times wow. a week
2: wow yeah. but
1: I, I literally just you know, thought I'm going to crack this
2: But oh, well, that's rare and they respect that and it was interesting because you're talking about mm. Ireland I'm sorry to be all over the no, place I just think was,
1: <laughs> digressive is good lots of good things come out of it already I think know. so yeah. well
2: that's the Irish thing it's yeah. very digressive I was interested in your time there because I, I've seen David Norris speak and I actually you have a bit of the David Norris about you too able to
1: <laughs> David was my tutor
2: yes it was interesting David yeah. yeah, was my
1: tutor at Trinity and I ran into him I mean, I was so moved when it all because he had such a terrible time when he was running for oh, president. Yeah. And that
2: was unfortunate. And he had a
1: liver transplant thereafter. I mean, he had a, a couple of anastomoses, and mm-hmm. basically, you know, when gay marriage came in, it also came in through popular vote. It was not legislated. It mm-hmm. was actually voted in by you know the the populace, and 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 very decisively as well. It was extraordinary.
2: In Catholic Ireland, like yeah, well,
1: Catholic Ireland theocratic Ireland I mean you know and it, it is astonishing what has happened in
3: yeah
1: I mean I, I left in, in March of 88 so I'm 27 years old. I left probably during the really a really drab time and it was it was time to go but you know I had an 11 very interesting years there mm-hmm. I've always been I think Ireland changed my life mm-hmm. in a lot of ways mm-hmm. I feel very much i mean i'm an irish citizen as you are Mm -hmm. i i have a very strong sense of the place and people are very welcoming when i come back i'm happy to see me it's not somewhere i could probably live again on a daily basis but I, i do have a huge respect for it and i think what's been very interesting about the last decade in ireland is watching how things got completely out of hand during the Celtic Tiger. It was crazy, and a certain arrogance developed out a certain
2: insanity.
1: Yeah, at a certain sort of strata, and people who you know were buying houses in, in terrible places because they had to get in. They had to get in, you know. And there was just an insanity. You were living there, weren't you? I
2: was. Family? Yeah. I never. Well, we Did didn't you buy, buy them. No. no? no. Well, we had had houses before, but we didn't want mm-hmm. to skip them. Way down there. But it was interesting. Do you consider yourself in some ways an Irish writer, partly? or?
1: I consider myself an American writer who lived in Ireland okay. and who has a connection with the place, but I would never call myself an Irish writer.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Recently, I was contacted by um, a, a group of writers because we're trying to get rid of the proposition, you know, the, the Eighth Clause in the Constitution about the right to life the end of the, oh, the abortion laws. Right, And and they just said, as an Irish writer, and I was very touched. I'm a citizen, as you are. You're Irish.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, And, of course, I saw it.
2: But I think the storytelling, also the oral aspect.
1: It made me rethink everything. It really did. I was sent to a a very posh, very intellectual school called Collegiate in New York. I was a middle-class kid there. There were a few of us who were not from Park and Fifth Avenues. We were phenomenally well-educated. It was socially a hateful place. But you were raised to very much be a prince of the city. So that's what you, you, you were going to do, and mm-hmm. fundamentally, I was trying to work in the theatre in New York after I finished college in the mm-hmm. States. I mean, first worked on, on a newspaper in Maine. I was coming under a lot of family pressure to do something sensible and go to law school, mm-hmm. and I fled. And Ireland, where I had been a guest student at Trinity College, basically allowed me to live this very bohemian existence for very little money. I never had family money. I never wanted even my father offering it to me when he saw me living in this bedsit in Donnybrook, so not far from you in Dublin. And he came over on a business trip from London to see his son, and he shoved $300 in my pocket and just said, mm. you're taking it. You know, you're taking it. Because I, I never asked for anything. I was always sort of proudly independent in mm. that way. And then I was at the Abbey for five mm. years. And I started to write, and so all these things happened because I was in Ireland, and I produced a film for RTE, and you know, and he has
2: opportunities there, which is nice. And, yeah.
1: and so it gave me a chance to do things that I would never have been able to do in New York. You know, I had one of my aunts saying, "Well, you know, you're a big fish in a small pond," which is a stupid thing to say to a twenty five year old. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I remember saying, "I'm running the National Theatre's second auditorium."
2: that's
3: great. Yeah.
1: And basically, I always knew I would have to go, but I was always very kind of waiting for the right moment. Where yeah. I, I, and the right moment was when I was having my first book out in London, and I thought, that's my calling card. Yeah. And I sold my house on Cross Avenue in Dublin 8, which is Dublin's barn,
3: mm-hmm.
1: for exactly what I bought it for. It's, you know, people always said that was a mistake. I said, you know what? It wasn't, because I got out. Uh, okay. And I bought a very small apartment in... East Putney, which is not a very interesting area, which is about 550 square feet. We had a a big two-story house, and I had my first book coming out, and I set up my shingle as a writer, and things happened. That's also the nature of living, is taking risk.
2: Yeah, you're not alive unless you're taking risks. You
1: have to take risks.
2: Yeah, and that's interesting with your fiction, because you have Well, I think you have a consistent, you know, the Douglas Kennedy book, and yet, and there's a thriller at the heart of this, and yet you're actually dealing with a lot of different subjects. as You Mm -hmm. say, taking risks, talking about corporate America, Mm -hmm. or, you know, just different different settings, and, you know, I think that's interesting.
1: Yeah, I mean, every book in its own way is very different from the others. I mean, there's a huge difference between... Let's say he the heat of betrayal on Mirage, exactly. which is called. Uh, and by the way, if you're publishing in the states, sure, the Blue Hour is okay. what it's being called, which was its original title.
2: And it's right there on the first page what yeah. you're talking about yeah, that.
1: The, the Blue Hour. Each book is very different, but of course you're bringing in lots that you know, and you're also also what interests me is writing about a lot that I don't know. So you know, for example, Robin in the Blue Hour is an accountant. I think I mentioned this, at Shakespeare and Company, my accountant. In London once said to me, when I look at somebody's books, I see everything. Mm. I know exactly, I know so much about their, their life. I don't s- singularly write about corporate America. I don't singularly write anything. I change subjects. The sure. things that interest me, I mean, when I was writing the big picture, my narrator is a lawyer in the trust of the state's department of a law firm. I was able, I, I learned quite a bit about that. I, you know, when I was writing a special relationship, I've never had a postnatal depression. Yeah, that uh, was courageous to write. But I met somebody at a dinner party who'd been through one and I'd been thinking about a book like this and I said, Would you give me your phone number and she said, Well, and I said, oh, I'm just at least if you have to lunch I'd like to, you know,
2: pick your brains. Pick <laughs> your brains.
1: And I showed up with one of my yellow legal pads and just said, Look, I'm like all writers, I'm a thief, you know, but I won't I won't ever use your name. Yeah. Uh, but and I'll reinvent it all. And she talked for and you know, her own husband
3: didn't
1: know half
0: of what she said to me that day. Mm. She, she'd never been asked. Hi, I'm Riley Andrews, a journalism student at DePaul University. For all my life, I've been interested in writing. I think this art of storytelling is the most important form of communication because of the connections it can build between all of us. And most of the reasoning behind that belief is touched on by Douglas. Douglas talks about the importance of writing what you know. The best stories are based on prior knowledge, whether that knowledge is based off of personal experiences or just an understanding of an idea. These stories are nuanced and they show the author's true passion for their work. Writing what one knows is also important in making connections with the readers. Having an understanding of what the audience expects and will feel at any moment in a story is essential to making sure that story meets its full potential and effects. The author's knowledge of their audience takes the connection between a reader and a writer to the next step. The reader gets to gain true insight into the personality of the author, and the author gets to show that they truly understand the reader and create a sort of relationship between them. This connection is something I get to experience every day in my job as a writing tutor. I've worked with dozens of writers at my university, and each time I have an appointment, I feel that I make a real connection with the writer through their words. Whether these appointments consist of face-to-face meetings or me just sitting alone in a room making comments on a paper, I know that I'm getting to know the writer better based on their words alone. I get an insight on their interests, their passions, and perspectives. This job has also taught me that writing what you know is something that typically comes across naturally in writing. Many people come seek out tutoring because they believe that they don't know what they're writing about, and I have yet to see a piece of writing where that was really true. The reality is the real challenge is writing to adapt to the audience's knowledge and perspectives and expectations. This is where the connection struggles the most, and surprisingly, it can come down to the small things, from the punctuation to the wording of a sentence. Once these aspects are overcome, the connection they work to build with the reader becomes so much stronger. This connection is the beautiful part of writing, and I'm grateful I get to see writers get to that point. So I'm thankful for Douglass' analysis and perspective on writing what you know, and how to use it to connect with the reader rather than prescribe your own beliefs onto the reader.
1: So how kind of behind that there's a mixture of aspiration and not just professional or material but kind mm-hmm. of human aspiration and also a sense of limitation as well i, I maintain as i said about pathology everyone mm-hmm. has it and largely if people feel very stuck in life or they feel it hasn't worked the way they wanted to mm. by and large that's also because they've set themselves up for that
2: yeah, self-sabotage
1: or whatever. Or just self confinement It's like the person who never traveled. You suddenly can choose certain things, and you choose to leave New York and move mm-hmm. to the Verbs. Yeah. You know, you choose a situation where, deep down, it's just going to become very quotidian. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that's wrong or right, no. but you know the what you're getting into or you're replicating your parents. And I know a lot of Americans, like people elsewhere, Somewhere in my dream, though, because they, they've got to get the house, and then they can't get out, or they're moving to somewhere. There was a woman I was seeing briefly, was an American, but was living in Ireland. She, she came up to me years later. She ended up a, a, a librarian, mm-hmm. and she was married an Irish guy. They moved to the Burbs and mm-hmm. on one of those estates. And here, here we were 25 years later in Dublin. Her kids were grown. Her husband has left her, and she was stuck in her own way. Oh. But she wasn't. I mean, frankly, she could have sold the house and probably have made, you know, four or five hundred thousand euros.
2: But they don't know what to do with it. I've said that to a number of friends. I said, well, you could leave now. Well, your you kids can, are
1: grown. Yeah, you could, you know? you, you <laughs> could just go. And, you want to live in Paris? Do it. You know, you yeah. go buy a small apartment here. Sure. Uh, you could do that. You could find some work here. Yeah. Uh, and you could live in Paris. The, Again, you know, uh, man is born free but everywhere in chains. But the <laughs> chains are largely self-imposed yes. mm-hmm. within our Western context. And especially if you've had a, certain, a degree of educational opportunity. Mm-hmm. You have choice in life. And how people deal with choice is very interesting. But well, that's um, the
2: trauma, isn't it?
1: That's, I've seen so much self-sabotage, both from people within you know, my own life. That's very interesting.
2: I liked it. was we were of a dramatic change and, you know, I, I do sense that dramatic background, you know, in the start of all your novels. You just get right into a woman's mother's just died or she has cancer or she's on a plane to Casablanca. You know, you engage immediately like that. Mm-hmm. Not too much description at the beginning. One of
1: the trickiest things technically for a writer, a novelist, is exposition. Exposition is interesting because, basically, unless you're writing David Copperfield, which begins with his birth and then his birth his death, you're starting at a given moment in time. So it's right here. Now, you have to, on one level, move the story forward. And writing is a form of seduction. I've always said you have to actually grab the reader whenever you can. Now, some of my books have a long burn. They don't grab you immediately. You're interested, but I'm not going to get into what's really going to happen. Yeah. For a while, I mean, the Blue Hour is a, a case in point. You know, they're on their way to Morocco. Okay, that's interesting. And then you, do, so here's a couple on a plane going to Morocco. I have to explain what they're doing, why they're going there, but also I have to. There's everything that happened before the story started. Yes. Yeah. So you learn that Robin is 40 years old, that she came out of a marriage of a, you know, her parents had a very troubled marriage, her father was a charmer but always out of work, you know, uh, one of these kind of businessmen, vagabonds, who was always bouncing from one job to another, they moved six times during her childhood, a very kind of much more responsible but clinically cold mother a bad first marriage, a life in journalism, a very asexual first marriage. So there's a lot of sadness there and there's a lot of damage. And she's met this man who's older, almost 20 years her senior, and he's her client and is obviously very talented.
2: I was interested, I guess one thing we haven't touched on, you're, you're producing, Oh, this uh, movie's just coming out. Well, it's it's in, in development. There's mm-hmm.
1: a project in development of a special relationship here in France. And also, the, yeah, there are one or two other sort of film projects. I've had three movies made for my books, yeah. which is actually not a bad track record. The film of uh, Woman in the Fifth was not a success. Although Palikovsky's next movie, Ida, which won him the Oscar for Best Foreign Film, was brilliant.
2: Yeah. So I was wondering, though, because you have that background in theater, And then now when you've seen Mm. some of your books, made into films, does that change in some way?
1: No, I mean, fundamentally, I've often said that for a a novelist, the cinema is Mm. like the casino. Mm. And I don't do casinos. Mm. I don't like gambling.
2: You like risk, but not gambling. I like
1: risk, but I don't like gambling. Uh, But I don't like gambling in the sense of putting money out and trying. I I know people who are gamblers, Mm -hmm. and they fascinate me. Um. And, and a book that marked me a lot was Dostoevsky's The Gambler. Um, oh, right, yeah. Because it's, gambling is always about a compulsion. Mm-hmm. And the compulsion is about losing,
2: mm-hmm.
1: fundamentally.
2: They're attracted to that.
1: They're, you have to be. Yeah. You, you have to be. I'm having dinner next week with a very good English friend who's a very cerebral, Oxford-educated guy. He's also he's written authoritatively on poker and he's a phenomenal poker player. I could never do it. He's invited me to games, and and basically those are the sort of games where when you play, it hurts. You lose a month's mortgage or something like that. And I mean, I'm not going to go down and and do that and lose £3,000 with people who fundamentally... They have a mentality for that. Yeah. I'm fascinated by professional gamblers.
2: I think, well, actually this is one I'm fascinated because I have like a 90 year old high roller mm-hmm. granny. and <laughs> Anyway, but I wondered, this is just an aside, I read that it was about an emotional deadness, but I don't even know if that's right.
1: People always have kind of these sweeping statements yeah. on why someone does that. It's like if someone gets caught in a sex scandal, they say, ah, he or she obviously cannot handle intimacy. People make these great pronouncements. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember all this nonsense when Clinton got impeached. In my experience, sex makes idiots of us all on a certain level, mm-hmm. and some people do more idiotic things than others, or some people get caught. Mm-hmm. It's as simple as that. And frankly, I think behind all human complexity, there is what I've often said about kind of decision-making in life. It's like the way you decide to stay with somebody or build a life with somebody, mm-hmm. do you think about that in a kind of, not you, but does one mm-hmm. think about that in a, mm-hmm. a kind of systematic, kind of a clinical, a priori way? No, uh, we're not
2: really no. in I mean, we pretend I mean,
1: Kundera had a great a piece in one of his novels, and he said the history of all intimate relationships is written in the first week. It's all there. Yes. You just don't want to see it. Right. It's true, in its own way, that suddenly everything is there. You know, when I look back at my first marriage, which lasted Mm -hmm. 25 years, and when I saw the reasons that it ended, I thought back to the first week we were together, Mm -hmm. when I read that Pandera quote, and, you know, without getting into details, and I'm not Mm -hmm. going to, that would not be very elegant, I started thinking there were the roots of the problems. Mm -hmm. And and my own stuff too, and everyone, you know, that's the thing in in a relationship, Mm -hmm. you both bring stuff to the table, Mm-hmm. and how you can integrate that stuff or not and how it changes and how you change. I think keeping a relationship going is the hardest thing in the world.
2: Yeah, you it's know? funny. We're not, we've not known to apply that as a logic or even like plotting, like a novel. We don't pay that attention. I've seen
1: very, very bright people with actually not very smart people. Mm-hmm. Uh, or they've talked themselves into a situation of oh, I was with someone very complicated for a long time He's simple, you know? He's a businessman, uh, but he's simple. I've heard that one. Or it, it, or that terrible one, which is I can change him or I can change oh, her. Wow. That's, yeah. <laughs> the fact of the matter is when I write about love in my books, it's so often it's a projection onto somebody else of what you want. But you're not looking at the other person. You're looking at everything you need. Mm-hmm. And that's also the kind of sadness that happens so often is people start out hopefully, but they're not frequently looking at what's, that or what's really there. Mm-hmm. And they're also not that conscious of their own pathology and how that's coming into play with it as well. It's like the person who has been essentially doing this for an entire marriage. Peak, The peak tout And then suddenly one day just sort of uh, the other person can't take it anymore. Yeah. I think intimacy is something very hard to maintain, and you can, but it's very hard to maintain, and I think. Building a life with someone else, it's probably the greatest challenge we have. Yeah. Yeah, you know, we don't. <laughs> we don't, you know. And so, in that sense, I'm not very prescriptive. Back in the States, my God, you hear if someone is unfaithful, it, there's still a touch of the scarlet letter to it all, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. My fellow living graduate, Mr. Hawthorne. Um, yes. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it is, it's the first great American novel. Yeah. What's the theme? It's Puritanism. Yeah. Yeah, that's why it's a very American novel. It's also, I mean, we're very prescriptive over there, and I mean, maybe France has kind of corrupted me a bit, but I I feel very strongly that you can't condemn when you don't really understand, and maybe the person themselves doesn't completely understand, in terms of just human mess. I've known many a relationship that has been broken up over infidelity, and probably they think afterwards, why did I do that? Sure,
2: but it's not the only thing. It's like there's the infidelity, there's the, the yeah. lies. So it's a different thing. Yeah, isn't it's it? just yeah. I know.
1: I just I, I'm not very prescriptive. No, no and, no. and I think also people are very complicated, and they do things for a variety of complex reasons, which mm-hmm. they themselves frankly don't completely understand.
3: No.
1: That's so. interesting. You know the fact that so much in human behavior. We're in control of it on one level, and yet you know, on another level, we don't totally get it.
2: Yeah. Well, that's yeah. Because as we say, you can see it all laid out when it's in the book or whatever, but you don't see yourself in this film or in this book that you are in. And no,
1: all or why you're doing it? You yeah. know I mean?
2: Okay. Can I ask about influences? So it's just about literature. You know, early mm-hmm. influences or the first book that really marked you. Some of those books.
1: I think I was always reading. In the moment, my narrator, Thomas, described being eight in Manhattan and his parents fighting in their small apartment, their 600 square foot apartment, and I made him an only child. We were actually five in that apartment, in 600 yeah. square feet, and going to the library. And my parents were in the middle of a fight, it was 1963, and I said to my dad, can I go to the library? And that was, we were on 19th Street and 2nd Avenue, very middle class area. It meant walking four blocks north and half-block over. Yeah. A second. And he said, all right, here's a dollar. A lot of money. He said, you get back here hour, I'll spank you. And I remember going up and this very nice woman helping me get a library card. And she was interested and she said, what do you like to read? And she suggested three novels and gave them Mm -hmm. to me. And then I went, in those days, all drugstores, as we call them over there, used to have a lunch counter. And I remember ordering a Coke. Uh-huh. Having 90 minutes change. I would never someone who read comic books and propping up this book, which was called The Phantom Tollbooth. Oh, uh, right. okay, Yes. And reading it against my Coke bottle. I was thinking about that the other day. I had a, a, a moment the other day just here in Paris where I just went over to the Hotel de Nord and I occasionally stopping in for a coffee. Mm-hmm. And they know me there. And I just had my notebook out and I was propping up. A copy of The New Yorker And having a coffee and just thinking I'm still doing this 52 mm-hmm. years later In terms of kind of books that really Influenced me I think if I was to say A couple of very important people for me early on One was Graham Greene right. Greene was a popular novelist Who was also very serious yeah. He was a great traveler
2: Great stylist too yeah.
1: Great stylist Yet he was also completely accessible. And he very much, kind of, I always think, writes about the search for forgiveness in a very unforgiving world. There's a sort of Catholicness to that without answers. He also made me want to live an interesting life. Mm -hmm. I was very determined about that early on, that I would try to live as interesting a life as I can. Another person who was very important to me early on actually was John Updike. Okay. Also, like Green, he was very protean. He's a real. Worker B, you know, yeah. Green was as well. I had four kids. And he was just, there are the novelists who take every ten years to write a book. I'm one of those people I have to be writing. I really mm-hmm. do. So he was very influential. Later on, I discovered an American novelist who was forgotten, named Richard Yates. Oh,
2: right, yes. Okay, so he's also with that. That's right, a Revolutionary
1: Road, mm-hmm. The Easter Parade. He was a revelation. I think because of Revolutionary Road, I wrote The Big Picture, but... He was someone who was looking at all the immense lies of American life, especially Mm -hmm. the way we tell ourselves, you know, we're great and all this, but Mm -hmm. he was looking at the way, essentially, people attract themselves. Mm -hmm. And he had this ruthless emotional clarity. It's Uh, uncomfortable for some people to read, yeah. It's highly uncomfortable. He was a seriously great writer and very underrated in his own lifetime. He's only Mm -hmm. been... Rediscovered since the amount of people when I first discovered Revolutionary. I gave it to my father, who was back when we were talking, and mm-hmm. he was horrified by it because it was his yeah. life.
2: They can't take the mirror.
1: Well, I don't know if they can't take the mirror. I don't know if people need to take it. I mean, the mirror is the mirror, and the mirror is like anything. I it's, a, it's like those bad lines. You can't take the truth. When people say, oh, I can't, you know, you can't mm-hmm. take the truth. Well, most of us can't take the truth.
2: It was a scary one? But he's yeah. so scary. Jim Thompson.
1: Yeah, but oh, well, he's just yeah. too far. Well, Jim Thompson is someone who I, I wrote about actually yeah. when I was in uh, when I lived in England. I did a big essay about him for the Sunday Telegraph yeah. around the time of the centenary. Yeah. I mean Thompson was crazy. I mean he was. I was just walking around two weeks ago with my wife Hollywood. She'd never been to L.A. I was just showing her kind of the seediness of the actual area that is Hollywood mm-hmm. and. I said, this is a Jim Thompson novel. It's also Bukowski as well. And I said, Thompson really wrote about the great American nowhere. And and people living in cheap hotels and people on the make. And really the kind of angry underside to capitalism. He he certainly was someone who I read and thought, this guy is very interesting. It's a really strange kind of worldview. Yeah,
2: complex Um, and complicated. Yeah,
1: complicated. (laughs) Flaubert was a big influence. I mean, Madame Mm -hmm. Bovary got me thinking. Madame Bovary is the first novel I've ever written about boredom. It's very 19th century in sensibility. It's Mm pre-Freudian. It doesn't have the nuance, you know, psychologically that we we would bring, but it was completely revolutionary Mm -hmm. at the time. And, you know, I'm still one of those people who still say probably... Gatsby might be line for line the most perfect book I've ever read. No, it is. In the same way that I think *A Farewell to Arms* is a novel I tried. It was interesting. I read an essay of interview with where He said he rereads it once a year.
3: Oh, okay, yeah.
1: I think I think that also, in its own interesting way, stylistically, very much changed the way we write. It. The thing is, I have a kind of. I read two to three books a week. Still, um, and so, everything, yeah, and everything. And I, and I guess, you know, I got together with my wife my second she She'd never seen anyone like me. I, I tend to sort of devour books. She so mm-hmm. said, I've never seen such a fast reader. I did that for years because when I lived in Ireland to basically pay bills. I had, I had a column on the Irish Times for a while until I got fired. by Conor Brady, just an editor, the new editor, didn't like me. And I also, I, I never let really forget that. <laughs> well, I got successful in a very gentle way, uh, but you know. But and, and basically, it became a source of embarrassment afterwards. you mm-hmm. heard Dark with and also I had a column which I had for about Jesus from nineteen eighty four until about ninety seven, mm-hmm. where I wrote a paperback column from the Southern Tribune,
3: mm-hmm.
1: and. I actually paid my mortgage every month. In fact, I did more than that. I spent seventy pounds a week, which I raised to a hundred. And I reviewed three paperback books a week, and and I did them wittily and mm-hmm. kind of a, with style. But I was, I was great training. But I was having to read so much, mm-hmm. and I had tons of books at home, which I would then sell to somebody because I had mm-hmm. so many. I would get like a hundred, you know, hundred books a month, and I would mm-hmm. and I was able to choose. Between twelve and sixteen to write about. And that I mean that was also just sort of the wonderful thing about coming up gradually. I, I mm-hmm. wasn't one of these people who wrote the novel at twenty eight or thirty and suddenly yeah. was getting. You all your
2: material and had to live another twenty years. <laughs>
1: yeah, and, and and had you know, had all this attention paid yeah. and sleeping with actresses and all that. I mean mm-hmm. I, it was a
2: that would have been
1: nice. <laughs> it was it would have been different. <laughs> Yeah, it was a slow burn. Yeah. It was a slow burn and it was just a gradual kind of move forward. So when I did have success, I was also a father of two in my early 40s and I, I think I had a somewhat different perspective.
2: It's it's very interesting. So, I guess one of the last things, and whatever, what are the importance for you of the humanities, and what do you think about the future of the novel? Just Uh, two small things.
1: Well, I think a couple (laughs) of things. I think I returned to the States in 2011 after, Mm -hmm. oh my god, 34 years away. And I did it for a couple of reasons. I mean, there was one reason I I was just divorced two years at that point, I was separated three, and I felt very strongly that I had to go back. I didn't want to turn into a professional expat. And I also knew I could do it and still be over here quite a bit. Mm -hmm. So life is always better with a return air ticket. You know, this is one of my great theories of life. At the same time, I love my country very much. I also see a lot of its contradictions. And I think the biggest gulf in American life at the moment, and I'm getting into your question, is, is, uh, it's going to get there. Uh, (laughs) Because this is part of it, is education. Okay. Uh, you can talk about blue states and red states you can talk about secular versus Christian you can talk about basically progressivism versus social conservatism yeah. but frankly the biggest gulf is education the humanities I feel you know, probably for the price of a couple of cruise missiles okay. you could fund every orchestra in America for 10 years culture in real terms, costs so very little mm-hmm. and does so much. I'm a music. Classical music's a big thing in my life. Mm-hmm. I'm a jazz. Not the cinema, mm-hmm. visual arts, dance. I mean, I'm a, a, a proper, kind of serious culture vulture. I, mm-hmm. I go to so much. Mm-hmm. It's my passion, and it has been really since adolescence.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: I was a very sporty kid. I didn't have a lot of friends at first, mm-hmm. but I was able to go out and go to museums or. Mm-hmm. Go at the age of when I was 14, I asked my parents to give me a subscription to the Museum of Modern Art. Mm-hmm. And that was my birthday gift. Yeah. I mean, I'm still a subscriber, it's $85 now, which is nothing already. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you get to go to every movie there as well in their Cinematheque, and they have yeah. two. You can see 150 films every year and go to every exhibition and, and avoid queues. Yeah. But I feel very, very strongly that actually education is the most crucial thing in the world. Education. Subverts ignorance, education. If also allows people to think in a more nuanced okay. way. I think we're in a very strange moment, and I see this everywhere. Everywhere you go in the world now, uh, people, and even even here in France, which remains one of the most literate and also literature-oriented cultures, mm. the book is. Being menaced by this,
2: yes, technology,
1: yeah honestly, one of the things we need to do is get I mean, I have a lot of younger readers, I mean mm-hmm. people who are late adolescents, university students, sure. but it's getting new readers
3: mm-hmm. more
1: than anything. That is our real work. Mm-hmm. It really is. and I think also, in real terms, a book costs very little. And we become... I think the other thing about reading is it requires you to actually hold something in your hands.
3: Mm. For
1: And it's something I, I feel very strongly. Curiosity is a very underrated virtue.
3: Mm.
1: And it's so crucial. You have to be curious. Mm. You have to be interested in it. And, and curiosity is an essential thing in life. Keeps it also keeps you interested.
0: The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Moschowski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast was Riley Andrews. Digital Media Coordinator is Yu Young Lee. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved in our exhibitions, podcast, or submit your creative works, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info.